Good morning, everybody. I'm getting stuck here. It's like my one job, and I still can't figure out how to do it. Just get the mic on. All right, here we go. We're in it now. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and thank you that we, uh, through Jesus, get to relate to you as our Heavenly Father. We just ask that you would take um, your rightful place as the most important person in the room, um, that your name would be holy and set apart above everything else. We take all of our cares and our worries and... Um, and we just trust you with them. We put them at your feet and we say, here you go, Jesus. Here's all this stuff that's going on in my life. I don't know how to deal with it or I don't know, I don't have the ability to um, change it maybe, but I trust you. We ask that you would give us focus um, as we look at your word so that we can just slow down and hear what your Holy Spirit wants to say to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're um, still going through the book of Luke, and this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to get into a couple of passages, and you know, our, our Bibles are helpful in that it's, you know, there's a lot of words in there, and so we're helped out by the fact that there's chapters and verses and kind of references throughout so that we can find our place again, um, and oftentimes before sections, the you know, the people who've translated that version of the Bible that you use often will put a little heading above, just kind of tell you what's going on in each section. And that's helpful. It's helpful to find your place. But ultimately, those things are added as references. Now, this stuff was all, you know, as we read through the book of Luke, it's just one long writing. Just like if you read a book, it doesn't have chapters. Well, it has chapters maybe, if you're smart enough to read chapters. Um, chapters, no verses though. It's not quite the same. And so one thing that's helpful, I think, is to learn how to read what we're reading in context. Sometimes it's easy because it's divided up into different little verses and sections. It's sometimes we just pick one thing or one thing. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to take a, a probably a, a well-known story about Jesus spending some time with Mary and Martha. We're going to take that. And right after that, Luke intentionally, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this teaching that Jesus gives on prayer. And oftentimes I think those would be divided up into two different messages. Today, today we're going to do both of them together because it's a helpful uh, exercise to learn how to read the context around what's going on and the way that the writers of the scriptures actually intentionally put things um, next to one another. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to invite you to read with me. Uh, the verses will be on the screen. Well, I mean, read quietly along. You don't have to talk out loud. I'll do that part. Okay, yeah. Uh, so we're going to be in chapter 10, the end of Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. So you can read along on the screen. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So there are a lot of 
sermons that people have given on this account of what happened in this house. And this is, a, this is kind of a, a special place. This place in Bethany uh, with Mary and Martha, and, uh, and we know from other places that they have a brother, Lazarus, as well. These were like some of Jesus's favorite people. And this kind of became like his rest spot, his little vacation spot, his home away from home kind of thing, where he would stop here regularly and spend time with them. It was one of his favorite places to be. And so this is, it seems to be probably um, maybe the first time that he's come to this house. And I li- I'd like us to think about being in that position, what it would be like to have Jesus come into your house. It'd probably be a little exciting, a little nerve wracking. I mean, maybe you get nervous just having guests over, just having like your in-laws over or something like that. That makes you nervous. Imagine having Jesus and 12 other guys show up at your house just that day. They just come into the town and Martha's like, hey, you can come into our house. So she's trying to get all this stuff ready for 13 guys who are now suddenly in their home. And, um, And I think with all the sermons that have been talked about or all the sermons that talk about this section, often they have this kind of bent of like, are you a Martha or are you a Mary? And it's kind of this like, are you an A type person or a B type person? Or like, it's almost like this personality thing. Like, do you have the right personality? And that's not really what this is about. That's not really the heart issue behind what's going on here. See, and and I think Martha often gets a bad rap. Because what she's doing is she's giving hospitality, she's serving, uh, which is something that Jesus, like when he's walking around with his disciples, he's constantly trying to get them to do that. He's like, hey, you guys, like, they're like arguing about who's the greatest. And he's like, you guys, like, if you want to be great, just serve somebody. If you want to be great, be the least. So what she's doing is not wrong in and of itself. Serving is great. Showing hospitality is awesome. There's something deeper going on than just simple busyness. And Jesus kind of calls this out. He says, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. And I like that. He's like, Martha, Martha. So I don't know if they did middle names back in the day, but it seems like a middle name moment, a little bit. Or just like, I can tell you're going through some stuff right now. You're feeling some stuff pretty strongly. And anxious and troubled about many things. Now, we don't know specifically what those things are, but we can guess I would guess at least a big part of it is the situation that she's in. 13 guys in her house, she's trying to show hospitality. And we can relate to that to a certain extent, right? Um, but I think even more so in this culture, I mean, she's, this is a time where it is, uh, y- you show honor to your guests. And if you do not, if you don't do a good job hosting guests, it is an extreme shame on you and your family to not show incredible hospitality to a guest and basically put out all the stops. And so there's this kind of burden there. And again, we don't know exactly what's going on, but I would guess that she's, at least in part, one of the things she's anxious and troubled about is about this aspect of hosting. And if we dig a little deeper to what is the heart thing that's going on, I would guess that her what she's feeling in this moment is that her identity and her worth as a person are tied to how well she cares for the guests in her home. Because that was a strong cultural message at that time. If you 
do a good job caring for guests, you're a good person. If you do a poor job caring for guests, you're a bad person. Whatever it was that Jesus was calling out in Martha, I think we can absolutely relate this morning. Now, maybe not so much in the hospitality thing, although there are definitely many of us in the room that have felt this way before about this exact situation. But for many of us, we just think about those words. You are anxious and troubled about many things. We don't have to think back too far to think about a time that we were anxious and troubled about many things, do we? I mean, this morning, probably. (laughs) You've been anxious and troubled about some things. And maybe, maybe you're real peaceful today, but yesterday then, okay? We relate to this very closely. This is something that we all have experienced. And this, this, this trouble, this fear, this anxiety that often is tied to a place of identity. We don't always go that far. We don't go down that deep, but it often is a fear and anxiety that we feel that's tied to a crisis of identity. So before we get too personal with ourselves, let's go back to Martha as an example, and we'll relate to her. See, because again, is hospitality bad? No. Is serving bad? Absolutely not. Those are things that we're called to embody, but it gets messy and it gets twisted when our worth and our identity as a person is tied to our performance. So rather, in, in Martha's case, maybe rather than serving and loving people in her home out of a sense of joy and genuine love for the people there, maybe rather than feeling free to take a break for a moment and sit at Jesus' feet, we don't have time to talk about it a whole lot, but what Jesus is doing here is very countercultural. Women didn't have a lot of opportunities in this time to sit and learn and essentially be a disciple. And that's what he's invited Mary and Martha to take that position, to sit at his feet. That's what they would do. They would sit down and listen to somebody teach. And that's what she's invited into. But she's feeling this anxiety over hosting. And, uh, and she's trying to maintain her identity and her worth by doing her duty, by getting her work done. And she's feeling this anxiety so much that she actually feels that Jesus is missing the point. And she needs to help him out and kind of redirect, right? She's like, don't you care? Don't you care? Tell my sister to help. Tell my sister to help me. And so again, looking from the outside, you know, again, if this, especially if this, this passage is familiar, it's like, we, it's easy for us to roll our eyes and be like, yeah, Martha, you should sit at his feet, right? It's like we, we kind of roll our eyes. But when we think about ourselves, we really do live with this same sense of panic when we are insecure about our identity. Now, again, we can't always identify it in the moment, but we feel a sense of panic when our identity begins to get attacked a little bit or we feel like, There's some danger to our worth as a person. We feel it's a little bit rocky. It's a little bit shaky. And that's what Martha's feeling in this moment is that there's these people here, really important guy, Jesus and his posse. And this is my chance. This is my chance to show what I'm worth. 
You can imagine the panic and anxiety that she would feel, and it's similar to what we feel much of the time in our lives. See, the anxiety she feels coming from a shaky identity is causing her to feel that her agenda, her will, is more important than what Jesus is doing at that moment. Right? That's, that's what's happening. And we do the same exact thing. We have these moments of panic that make us act unlike we were created to act. We were created for peace. We were created for joy. We were created to feel unconditional, genuine love for other people. But in these moments of identity and worth crises, where we start to feel squeezed a little bit, we get panicked. Me and my wife, uh, just a couple nights ago, were watching a comedian that we think is very funny. And he was talking about his experience that once he got into his 40s, he all of a sudden developed claustrophobia. He had a bad experience and from then on has struggled with claustrophobia. Obviously, he was kind of like joking about it. But I was like, man, that is so us. That's so relatable. And, you know, maybe some of us in the room deal with claustrophobia, but it is this thing, the way he was describing it is it's like you get into this tight space and all of a sudden panic just sets in. And you who maybe would normally be a cool, calm, collected person are like, pull the car over, right? I got to get out. And it's this sense of panic and it's not necessarily rational. It's not based on anything real, but it feels real in the moment. This is how we feel when our, when our identity and our worth is threatened. See, if we are in charge of creating and maintaining our identity and worth as a person, we will be driven by anxiety and troubled by so many things. If we are in charge of creating and maintaining our identity and worth as a person, we will be driven by anxiety and troubled with so many things. And this is why this is important for us to, to hear this this morning, to grapple with this, maybe to wrestle with this a little bit, is because this is exactly the opposite of the current cultural message we hear every single day. The message that we hear every single day is that you need to discover your own identity. You need to maintain your identity. You can't let anybody else define you. You can't be defined by the groups you're a part of. You can't be defined by your parents. You can't be defined by the town you grew. You can't be defined by anything except what you think about yourself. And you need to maintain that and fight for that and hold on to that. And nobody else better challenge it. That's the current cultural message. But the reality is, is that when our identity is founded upon ourselves, then I, like, if my identity is just what I think about myself, I know myself. I'm shaky. I'm unstable. My mind changes from one day to the next. My emotions are going like this. And if that's what my identity, like the core of who I am and my worth as a person, my value as a person, if that's all determined by what I can do, then I'm going to live the rest of my life freaked out. When somebody starts to get in my space a little bit, I'm going to lash out at them because it's like, you better not. I've worked so hard to build this. You better not touch that. And we experience that all the time personally. And I'm not talking about pointing fingers at anybody else. I'm talking about we point the finger at ourselves and we say, man, that is why I lash out so much at my roommates. 
at my friends, at my coworkers, at my family, because they're regularly threatening this sense of identity and worth that I've built. We do this all the time because, again, we can fill in the blanks. Maybe it's not this place of hospitality that Martha was feeling, but maybe we find our sense of worth and identity in success, succeeding in work or succeeding at school. And so when that starts to be threatened, maybe, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work as hard as I need to work to succeed at my job at the expense of everything else, at the expense of my health, the expense of my family, the expense of, you know, you name it. Because if that, if I fail in this area, I am worth nothing. If I fail in this area, who even am I then? Or I get a bad grade and I'm crushed because I think of myself, you know, if somebody was asked you, tell me about yourself. Well, I'm a good student. What happens when that's gone? Or maybe I find my identity in what people think of me in, in affirmations of other people, in the affirmations of my friends, my parents, social media. And I'm going to do things like maybe my life isn't going so great. So I'm going to fib it up a little bit so that it looks better, so that people give me pats on the back, so that my identity maintains intact. See, this is the same thing that humans have been doing since the very first time that we messed up. When Adam and Eve sinned, what was the thing that they did? They're like, we want to be God. We want to decide right and wrong. Then all of a sudden they're like, oh, we're naked and we're ashamed. And God's like, why? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that that was a shameful thing? They decided. They just, then they started covering up with leaves, right? And so they're trying to maintain and manage their own fallenness and their identity and their worth and their shame. They're trying to manage all this stuff on their own. And then, you know, and we just see that happen over and over and over again. We, th we look at the Tower of Babel, right? They're like, we're going to make our na a name for ourselves. We're going to just build the super high tower. We're going to build it up to the heavens. And basically it's like a, a, a straight up assault on God and who he is. Like God's in heaven, but we could get there too. And God's like, all right, I'll let you go to a certain point, but then I'm going to shut that down. And that's exactly what he does for all of us. We get to experience the futility of our own attempts to assign worth and value and discover our, our own identity in ourselves. And so Martha is feeling all of this stuff and she asks, Jesus, do you even care about me? Do you see me? Do you understand how I'm feeling right now? Because if you did, you would be building up my sense of self. <laughs> I feel panicked right now. This is my time. If I blow this, then I'm worthless as a person. This is how she's feeling. So tell my sister to take some of the burden with me. But here's the thing for Martha and the thing for us this morning is that Jesus cares about you too much to let you have your way. He cares about you too much to let us try to build our worth and our identity based solely on what we can do, what we can come up with, what we can achieve. See, my way is stuck in anxiety. And I'll just tell you, if you try to build your worth and your identity on anything other than Jesus, you will be stuck in anxiety for the rest of your life. Jesus gives us freedom when we surrender to him. He's our creator. He made us. He defines us. And when our relationship with him is where we find our worth and our identity, we discover a solid and immovable foundation that we can stand on. 
Jesus has existed forever. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's unchanging for all of time and beyond time. There is nothing more stable and movable than Jesus. And he invites us to find our worth and our identity in relationship with him. That our creator, Jesus, can actually define us. And he loves us too much to try to shakily forge an identity based on temporary circumstantial things. This is what he's pointing Martha to by saying, hey, there's only one thing that's needed. Only one thing. And Jesus is the one thing. That's what he's saying. And Jesus chooses his words very intentionally. He says, Mary has chosen the better portion. He chooses those words carefully. And it makes me think of Psalm 73, 26, where the psalmist writes, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And man, I relate to that. Because I know my flesh, my heart, I fail all the time. But Jesus is inviting us to a place where he can be that one thing, that foundation upon which we build our lives. And now Luke butts up against the end of this story, Jesus teaching on prayer. So let's jump into that. Chapter 11, verses one through four. Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, I think it's interesting that out of all the things that his disciples could have asked Jesus to teach, they ask him to teach them how to pray. His disciples are picking up on something, right? And you think back a couple weeks, we looked at Jesus sending out his disciples ahead of him. He's like, gives them instructions. He says, go, you know, heal the sick, cast out demons, kind of crazy miraculous stuff that it's like, whoa, like they've seen him do this stuff, but now he's telling them to do it. And you don't see them asking him to teach them to do those things. The thing that it's recorded that they ask is, hey, would you teach us how to pray? They're seeing that there's something about Jesus's prayer life that is deeply integral to who he is as a person, to his effectiveness in ministry. And Jesus is saying things regularly like, hey, I only say what the father tells me to say. Like think about all the things you say on a daily basis. Jesus said, every single word I say, it's only what the father tells me to say. And he also said like, I only do what the father, so word and deed, he only does what the father says and tells him to do to say and do. And in this prayer, Jesus is defining the relationship we are created to have with God. It's been said about Jesus that he is the most human human who has ever lived. I think that's really accurate. See, because we were created in God's image to share some of his attributes, not his eternal ones, but to share his, in his attributes. 
to have a sense of his likeness that we carry with us and to relate to him. And Jesus lived that out perfectly. Every day, every, everywhere he went, he was carrying the image of God. That's how Hebrews writes about it. It says he's the image of the invisible God. And he defines this relationship that we're supposed to have with God as a father-child relationship. Which is interesting. He could have said like, all-powerful God, which is true. Or creator God, also true. But no, the the relationship that we're created for is a father-child relationship. And it's a relationship that's characterized by love and submission. I talk about a lot. I really love my kids. Like, they're my favorite people in the world. I mean, you guys are all great, but I would trade you all for my kids in a second. (laughs) Because there's something about being a parent, the way that you feel about your kid, you don't really expect or need anything from them. You just want everything for them. And it's even more so from God to us because he's God. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't lack anything. He doesn't need us sitting in a room thinking about him. He's going to be fine either way. He was fine before he made any of this stuff. He was having a great time. But he invites us into this relationship and that's characterized by love, namely his love for us. And then our response when we realize like, wow, you're God. (laughs) That we have a respect and a submission to his will. That he unconditionally loves us. And then we, as his children, live in that love and express that by submitting to his will and trusting him. That, That would be my simplest definition of the Lord's prayer. It's God, you love me and I submit to you. God, you love me and I trust you. That's kind of the simplest boiled down version of the Lord's prayer. And so this is what Jesus, this, this is how he's redefining what it looks like to have a relationship with God is that he's our father, we're his kids, and we say, not my will, but yours, be done. Let's continue. He, he continues his teaching on, pre, on prayer uh, in verses 5 through 10. He said to them, which of you has a friend uh, or who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. And my children are with me in bed. I cannot give, get up and give you anything. I tell you though, he will not get up and give you anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So Jesus is kind of contrasting here. He's talking about God, you know, as our, as our heavenly father. And then he kind of brings it down to a human level relationship and talks about, just imagine you, you have a friend. Some of us don't, but imagine you did. Imagine you have a friend and you are in a bind in the middle of the night. You have somebody show up at your house. You have no food. You got to go ask your ne- next door neighbor friend, hey, can I have some food? I, got, I need something to give to this guy. And <clears throat> he's like, this person's not going to get at, at, at midnight. Like this person's already been asleep. They're not going to give you food because they're feeling, you know, a lot of love for you at the moment. <laughs> they're just going to say, yeah, here's some bread. Go away. Let me go back to bed. 
So he's contrasting that with the idea of our heavenly father. And so he's kind of saying like, so you ask for that from your friend and you'll receive. He's kind of saying like how much more than if when you ask of your heavenly father, will you receive? If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, the door is going to be open to you. Because I mean, it's, I think about, again, I think about my own kids. I don't, my, my youngest, my, my son, he's not quite one yet. So he's still waking up pretty regularly throughout the night. I don't love being woken up in the middle of the night, but I'd rather be woken up by him than by anybody else. And I don't always feel this way, but often when I'm, when I'm in there, I'm holding him. He's crying. He's mad because he doesn't want to see me. He wants to see mom at that point. But it's like, well, hey, mom's got to sleep. <laughs> uh, so I'm in there, I'm holding him. And I, not all the time, but I often will get to a place of like, man, I'm just so thankful that I get to be this little guy's dad. I get to hold him. I get to be the one that comforts him when he's freaking out in the middle of the night. And it's special. And this is what Jesus is showing us. And it really, what he's inviting us to do is to ask God for anything and everything. See, because we all have these felt needs, just like Martha had a felt need in that moment. I need Mary to help me right now. And here's the beautiful thing is that as we talk to God about the things that we need, the things that we want, and we come to him as our heavenly father, we say, God, this is how I'm feeling right now. But the beautiful thing is just like what happens with Martha, she talks to Jesus and it gives her an opportunity for a conversation where he can redefine for her what's really important and what's really going on. When she comes into that conversation, she's like, hey, Jesus, here's what I need you to do. Here's my, here's my items, here's my list. But here's the thing about Jesus, he's not gonna be our magic genie. God is our heavenly father who actually wants what's best for us, we don't always know what's best for us. And so when we come to him in prayer, it gives an opportunity for a conversation where we say, God, this is how I feel. This is what I want you to do. And I'm gonna trust you. And that's what Jesus does with Martha. He said, hey, I know this is what you want, but actually I'm inviting you to choose the good portion. And that's what he does with us. So as we bring to him our wants and our desires, we submit those things to God and we just keep asking. And then maybe the next day it's like, hey, I feel bad about this again, God. I'm not liking this again. And I bring it to him again. And I bring it to him again. And I bring it to him again. And that's the kind of relationship that God has with us. We don't have to have our stuff together to relate to God. That'd be a pretty wimpy God if we needed to, you know, somehow clean ourselves. Oh, I can't handle that. That's too much emotion. <laughs> That's never how he responds. It's like, yeah, come here. Let's talk. Tell me what's going on. I know. I know. I got it. I got it. It's under control. But it's in this place of prayer that, we're, that we actually are, find ourselves back in a place of really just the freedom of submitting to God. The freedom of saying, God, I, I can't control this. God, I'm feeling attacked. I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling worthless. And God helps and talks us through that, gets, us, gets our heart right. Let's wrap up this passage, verses 11 through 13. 
Jesus brings it back to talking about fathers. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And in this whole section that we've been reading today, here's kind of the big like, this is the point right here. This is it. That God always wants to give us the very best and it's himself. God always wants to do what's very best in our life and it's always first and foremost to give us himself. There is nothing better in all of creation than God himself. Everything else is created stuff. Everything else is temporary, but God himself is our portion. It's incredible that that is what he would offer to us. But Jesus is making this distinction. He's like, hey, I know for those of you who are parents, you guys are messed up. I mean, I'm messed up, right? Me, Daniel Olson, I am messed up. But I'm not throwing snakes at my kids, <laughs> And he's saying, if you even know how to do that, then how much more is your heavenly father who is perfect not going to just give you exactly what you need? And it's himself. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And uh, how we're going to wrap up this morning is we're just going um, to pray the Lord's Prayer together. And it's something that the church has been doing for a long time since Jesus first taught this. Um, and the, the words are going to be on the screen because I know there's sometimes different versions, different ways that people say it. So it'll be on the screen for you to follow along. But this is, this is why we're going to end this way is because we don't change and transform just by hearing a sermon. And it's like, okay, cool, I got it. Check. There's some deeper heart work that has to happen. And we've been talking about this morning, this place of identity. I mean, it doesn't get a whole lot deeper in our heart than that. These are some of the deepest, most integral questions that we ask about ourselves. And these are deep places that we need God to come in and begin to redefine and reshape. And it's a process. But in that process, there's no better way to engage with, what's God, with what God is doing in your heart than to just do exactly this, to continue to come to him in prayer and just say, God, this is what's going on in my life. And, I'll, and maybe I don't even feel this right now, but I just want to trust you. Would you help me to trust you? Would you help me to submit to you? Would you help me to want you more than anything else? I can't tell you guys how many times I've prayed that prayer. God, I want to want you more than anything else. I know there's other things that I want more right now. Like that's, I know how I'm feeling right now. But I want to want you more than anything else. And man, that is a prayer he will always say yes to. Always. Always. So we're going to wrap up. And uh, so I, again, and just in a place of prayer, I want us to go through this just maybe a little bit more slowly than you're used to. Just because I want us to, to engage with this. I want us to pray it from a true place in our hearts, not just reciting something, but just engaging with God as our heavenly father. Saying, God, you, I know you love me. Your will be done. 
I trust you for everything I need. All right, let's pray this together. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand and worship.